everybody. How are we doing today? Good. Good morning, everybody on Zoom. Good to see you guys. Um, we have very few announcements that we want to go through today. Just an update on our fundraising to purchase this building. Um, just to refresh you guys, uh, we're hoping to buy this building from the German United Church of Christ, and we're doing a fundraiser for investments that will be repaid for up to 3% interest for participants. Um, we're kind of in between what we're, what we're calling uh, investment phases, and so we, we don't have a whole lot to report to you guys right now, but more will be coming in the next few days, and we'll definitely keep you guys updated, but the aim remains the same. We're trying to raise the money to purchase this building. This is an investment opportunity. Not, we're not just asking for donations. Uh, so if, if you or anybody you know might be interested in participating or would like some more information about this, feel free to reach out to the pastors. And of course, as always, this is based upon calling. You know, we're not asking for anybody's reluctant money. God is faithful, and he'll do with us whatever he pleases and desires. With that, we'll just go straight into our catechism. So we're, we're going through the New City Catechism. We're on question 30. And this, this helps us to refresh on the tenets of the faith. And the question today is appropriately, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Will you go ahead and just pull up the answer, Jordan? This is a great answer because not only is it uh, nice and robust, but it actually goes extremely well with our sermon this morning. The answer is faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he has offered it to us in the gospel. So faith in Jesus can begin extremely small. We see places in scripture when Jesus pronounces salvation upon people, and it, it's, they're not identical to each other. Some of them are just as simple as uh, Zacchaeus telling Jesus, hey, I'm guilty of robbing people, and I am so sorry about it. I'm going to pay these people back and give them extra money, and any extra money that I have, I'm just going to give it to the poor. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this household. Uh, a thief who hanged on the cross beside Jesus said, remember me when you, when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Salvation in Jesus is, is really, really dynamic and diverse because of this. It's acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word. The salvation that's available in Jesus Christ is namely that he has provided atonement and salvation for sinners by his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. But that's not the, the only aspect of faith in Jesus that we need for salvation. It's also the faith that he's created us. It's also the faith that he will judge us. It's, it's also the faith that he will restore this world. It's everything that God's word teaches us about Jesus and faith can begin in, an, in a diverse area of ways, as we've seen in Scripture. Ultimately, though, it hinges on this. Trusting in Him and also receiving and resting on Him alone for salvation, as He is offered to us in the gospel. Faith in Jesus is not just admiring Jesus as a great teacher. It's not just admiring the historic works of the church. 
Um, it's also recognizing that he is the only means for salvation. That Jesus' payment for our sins is the only ways that we could be forgiven of our sins. That Jesus' uh, forgiveness of our sins is the only way that we may enter into his kingdom in eternity. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the question again. And if you feel comfortable doing so, please read the answer out loud with me. Faith in Jesus Christ, oh, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Answer, faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. May we all have faith in Jesus this morning. Let's pray and we'll begin our sermon. Lord, thank you for this morning that we have together, and we thank you that you've provided for us a gospel that is a means to salvation. I pray that this morning that you would be proclaimed and glorified through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been going through a sermon series, uh, selecting a few psalms in the book of Psalms to discuss various different practices that we can have as faithful believers. This morning, we're going to be discussing confession as it is described in Psalm 51. But first, I want to clarify what biblical confession is. Now, so when we say confession, oftentimes today we think a, a, an admission of guilt. You know, you might, you might think of a few different settings that exemplify or, or illustrate this graphically. You may think of a confessional and the classic church sort of view where there's someone sitting down and there's a screen and another person on the other side and the person uh, is, is confessing their sins and saying, I'm guilty for this, 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 and this. Or confession could also mean a press conference saying, hey, you know what? The rumors are true. I did do X, Y, Z. I think a lot of this is, for many of us today, confession is the last step of the guilty, or innocent until proven guilty steps. That you finally get to the place where uh, all the evidence is stacked up against me, okay, I might as well fess up for the crime. Confession seems like it's a divulgence of our innocence and, and saying, okay, yeah, I give up. You got me, I did it. But, and even though that may be what confession is today, biblically, confession is actually a lot more simple than that. Even down to the English word that we have uh, for confession, it's made up of two roots, con and fess. Con means together, likeness. Think we convene, we go to a convention. And fess means to speak forth, like to profess. To confess is to speak together. Effectively, what it means is to speak out in agreement. Confession, biblically, is not so much, I did it. Confession is, I agree. I agree with what you just said. I say the same thing together with you. For the intents and purposes of today's study, it's important that we depend on that framework for confession. It's less about, about admittance of guilt and sorrow, and it's so much more about proclaiming agreement with God's words. 
Now, so if confession is about agreement, then what are we agreeing with this morning? Well, the Bible is full of all sorts of propositions. God proposes that this is the way the world functions. This is how we operate as human beings. But the primary proposition that I want us to focus on this morning that is pivotal in Psalm 51 is God's indictment on humanity. Proposed in scripture is this statement, everyone is a sinner. Now that's a provocative doctrine. Everyone is a sinner, but it's, it's not totally unique to the Bible. In fact, we just as regular people say a lot of the same things, but we just kind of say it in a little bit more of a palatable way. We say, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. That seems a lot easier, and we're more apt to agree with that. But in reality, that's saying the exact same thing as what the Bible teaches. Now, the Bible does use more provocative language. Everyone is a sinner. But I think it's important for today that we use the biblical language because for the very reason that it makes us uncomfortable. Just like exercise, working out, discomfort is a sign of progress. And we, sometimes we need to sit in places of discomfort in order to grow and get to the next level. So we'll prefer the Bible's language today. Now, I, I think the reason why everyone is a sinner can sound so provocative and so harsh is because we misunderstand what sin is. When we hear sin, we think that's a harsh word. It's declaring evil and malice and, and bloodthirstiness. But the word sin is not the only word that the Bible uses for errors, but the word sin, it's actually a really soft one. It really just means to miss. Everyone misses. It's a little bit more palatable. I miss. I intend to, to, um, to live my life in accordance to God's word, and I miss sometimes. I aim for that, and I miss sometimes. I fail sometimes. If you can resonate with that, if you can just say, everyone misses, I miss, then you're agreeing with God's word, and that is what confession is. That is confessing what Psalm 51 is proclaiming here. And before we get into Psalm 51, I do want to make one more clarification. I want to expose something. When we say nobody's perfect, there's a little unspoken parentheses there. Oftentimes when we say nobody's perfect, so when you fail, it's not a big deal. Now, that is where the Bible disagrees. The Bible explains that every sin that we commit is a big deal. And a lot of the Bible is written for us to explore the, the depths and the heights of the failures that we make as people. But the Bible does this. It deepens our understanding of sin in order to show us that there is a means for salvation, in order to show us that we need and desire salvation, and then the Bible provides that salvation in Jesus Christ. In Psalm 51, David will use three different ways to heighten, to explain to us why sin is a big deal. The first one is, sin is a big deal because it defiles us. Secondly, sin is a big deal because it's against God. And thirdly, sin is a big deal because it alienates us from God and from other people. 
So let's begin by reading Psalm 51. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar, the word of the Lord. This psalm, just like many of the psalms, opens up with a preface. And the preface says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This is a psalm of David, and it's one of the few psalms that gives us the, uh, the context in which it was probably written. This was probably written by David when Nathan the prophet came and exposed a sin of which David was guilty. I'm only going to briefly touch on this. This is not going to be a sermon about what David did. This is going to be a sermon about Psalm 51. But if you're interested in the details of that narrative, they're in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I'll give you the summary. David was a glorious king that God had brought to the throne of Israel, and he had already married a few different women at this point. He'd already had children. And one day, when he was not out to battle, he saw a woman bathing naked. He sent his messengers to fetch this woman, and because of the power dynamics between king and subject, he persuaded or even coerced her into an adulterous meeting with him, and he impregnated her. At this point, he had already known that she was actually the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was a faithful and mighty warrior on David's side. David tried to trick Uriah into, um, into being, with, uh, being with Bathsheba in, in, in a carnal way and having, sleeping with his wife, but he wasn't able to because Uriah was too faithful to his role as a soldier at this point. And so 
In order to fully cover it up, David had Uriah killed and swiftly married Bathsheba, so that way her pregnancy can appear to be a legitimate pregnancy. Nathan, who was David's friend and a prophet of the Lord, came and exposed this, and David confessed that what God says about this, I agree with. This is sin. This is wicked. I am guilty. Now, this psalm was written in response of David feeling that way, but it's also to the chief musician, to the choir master. David submitted this into the repertoire of the court music because he recognized that what he was describing here was common to all people. He talks very little about the specifics of his sin in this, but he just talks about the sentiments of it. What someone may feel when they realize that they've made a horrible mistake and they want God to forgive them. And so this is available to us. The psalm opens with David saying, Have mercy on me, O God, and blot out my transgressions. God is the one who's judged David's acts and has declared it evil and wicked and sin. He's declared it a miss for the understatement of a lifetime. Yet David is petitioning that self-same God who judged him guilty. He's also asking him to be merciful to him to love him. Why would God do that? Well, it's here in the psalm, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You see, it's in God's nature to be merciful to his children. It's in God's nature to be loving toward his children. When David asks God to forgive him for his sin and to to show him great mercy, all David is asking God to do is to do what God wants to do. Now, There's also a a hindrance to that, though, because not only is God loving and merciful, but God is just and holy, and what David has done, God has deemed it wicked. So David finds occasion to appeal to God's love and God's mercy because he knows that he very well could be met by God's judgment and justice. Now, here's here's the first indictment about sin why sin is such a big deal sin is such a big deal because it defiles us verse 2 is david asking god to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin the imagery there is that sin taints us i don't know if you can relate to this but i certainly do that there are mistakes that i've made as a human being that have left their imprints upon me and have changed the way i've operated as a human being for the rest of my life There are ways that I failed as an adolescent that has now altered who I am as a human being. It's left its imprints upon me. I bear shame of people that have picked on in life, or I I bear the the guilt of, of people that I've related to in a fleshly sense and and risked their purity at the expense of their purity. I bear the guilt of that. Sin leaves its imprint upon us. Not just sins that people do to us, but sins that we commit live their imprint upon us. And so David is asking God to clean him. Sin can be committed in a fleeting, passing moment, but then it could leave its implications on us for the rest of our lives. That's why sin is a big deal. Just a tiny compromise, just a tiny 
lapse of judgment, and it can alter the way you are for the rest of your life. I don't know if you've ever seen an interview with a, with a convict or somebody who's committed a heinous crime, and they say something along the lines of, in just one moment, my entire life changed because of one decision or because of one night, I'm in here for the rest of my life. Sin has a propensity to do that. Takes an instant, can change a life. So sin is a big deal. Then in verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. You hear that? that my sin is ever before me. That's that imprint. It's upon him. He, his own sin, the depth of what he did, it becomes the lens through which he sees the rest of his life. He sees everything through the terrible deed that he's done. But listen to this. He says, I know my transgressions. We contend to disillusion ourselves and call our sins by other names to make us feel better about them. We can call lies fibs, we can call adultery an affair, we can call lust humanity, we can call greed ambition, and we can call gluttony self-care. As long as we're playing that game, as long as we're recategorizing and disillusioning ourselves, or, or diluting ourselves to believe that our sins are anything less than sin, we're not prepped and ready for confession. And if we're not prepped and ready for confession, we're not prepped and ready for the salvation that God has provided for us on the other side of it. So David at this point is done playing those games. He's not calling it the privilege of a king. He's not calling it a lapse in judgment. He says, I know my transgressions. In other translations, it says, I acknowledge my transgressions. But sin is also a big deal because it's against God. In verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Don't misunderstand this. David isn't saying here, to heck with everybody else. I didn't do anything wrong to anybody else. I just sinned against God. That's not the point that he's trying to make here when he says, against you only, God. It's that he's tapping into something, a perspective that maybe we don't see all the time. David's recognizing that his sin goes all the way to the top. Now, let's, let's examine the circumstances of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. When David went into Bathsheba, he sinned against her because he defiled her. He sinned against Uriah because he was her husband. He sinned against the nation of Israel because he was their sworn king and had a responsibility to live righteously and judge righteously. He sinned against himself because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that sexual sin is sin against your own body. He sinned against the messengers that he sent to fetch Bathsheba. He made them complicit in his adultery. He sinned against his own children. He sinned against his own wives. David sinned against a lot of people. But in each and every one of those relationships, God is the proprietor over them. God is the protector of them. God is the gatekeeper for them. Bathsheba's not just a person. She's the daughter that God's trying to protect. God is Bathsheba's holy father. God is Uriah's holy father. God is the founder and protector of the nation of Israel. He's the father of David's messengers and wives and children. And David's sin goes all the way to the top because it's spat in the face of God's will for them. In every person's life, God is trying to reach them in his love and in his mercy. But when we sin against people, 
it affects the way they see the world. It affects the way that they see God. It maybe even affects whether or not they're able to believe in God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that someone can't believe in God because of things that were done to them as a child or things that were done to them in their lives. Therefore, they can't believe in God. When we sin, we interrupt God's mission toward his people. Now, David taught and takes a second to talk about his own nature. He's taken some time to talk about God's nature, that God's nature is, is one of steadfast love and abundant mercy. But then David says about himself, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's not David saying that he was conceived out of wedlock. It's him confessing that he is by nature a sinner. It's him deepening his confession, saying, yes, I did this, and I will say, for one, that it was not out of character. You know, it's common when, we, when we're found in our guilt that we say, oh, yeah, I did that. It was really not me. Like, it was me, but it was not me. Or that was so out of character. That was a lapse of character. David's not saying that here. He's saying, hey, I was born a sinner, and I meant what I did, and I'm sorry. Now, that is confession, the Bible doesn't say that we are all good people by nature. The Bible doesn't say that we, are, we start out really good and then the pains of life beats the good out of us and then we become jaded, awful people. The Bible says that we are born by nature children of wrath in the words of, second, uh, in the words of Ephesians 2. This confession is required of us. If we are to access the salvation that's available to sinners, we need to confess this too. Remember, confession means I agree. The Bible says that we were born into a nature of sin, and to that I say I agree. There, there have been times in my life when people have confronted me, and my first unconscious, instinctual answer is a lie. Matt, are you paying attention? Yep. Wait, what? It's because by nature... I use sin and dishonesty at my disposal. They are the tools that I use to accomplish my endeavors. And so, yeah, I confess that. I agree with that. I am by nature a sinner. And pause for a second. This doesn't mean that we as people are incapable of doing good things. The Bible also says that God created us in his image, but we are fallen from that grace. And so there are remnants of God's image and the things that we do and the way that we uh, can maybe love our children or love our spouses or love our friends or, or give to charities and do charitable work, that's because that's how we were originally made to be. That doesn't change the fact that oftentimes when our backs are against the wall, we'll use dishonesty and dishonest gain at our disposal because just as much as we were created to be in God's image, we are by nature sinners. Let's press on into verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David has first said, I am by nature a sinner. That means that deep down inside, there's sin there. The Bible says that. The Bible says that the, the heart of humanity is deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? But David said that that does not please God. 
God wants goodness deep down goodness, not just going through the motion good deeds, but a heart of goodness. And David's confessed, I don't have that, but look, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is completely dependent on God to make him into the person that he wants to be and needs to be. Now, our third indictment, sin is a big deal because it alienates us from God and people. Verses 7 and 8. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In these verses, David is alluding to a condition of leprosy. In the Bible, leprosy and its exposure in biblical times was a very serious thing, and there were even laws about how to quarantine lepers because of containment, and we understand that a lot right now, don't we? Um, And the rule was, if somebody had a sore that appeared to be leprous, a priest would look at it, examine it, and determine whether or not it's leprous. If it was, that person would be cast away from their community which included worship of God. They couldn't enter into the tabernacle. They couldn't enter into the temple. And so they were alienated. But in the rare occasions when a sore that appeared to be leprous maybe healed itself or disappeared, then that same kind of priest would examine that person and say, oh no, you're, you're actually clean, you can come back. But before they did that, they would do this ceremony that involved hyssop. It was a complicated ceremony, but I'll just highlight what David's getting at here. Hyssop was a mint-like fragrant plant, and it was used in this ceremony to, to symbolize the cleanliness of the person. The person had been made clean, even though before they were t- determined to be unclean and filthy and had to be set away and contained. David's asking God, Hey, do that ceremony on me. Let me come back. David was experiencing a distance away from God. And perhaps you can relate to that. Maybe you're feeling somewhat distant from God right now. And understand that sometimes, not all the time, But sometimes that happens because there's unacknowledged sin. And our relationship with God is not unlike our relationships with each other. That as junk piles up between us and goes unspoken and unrecognized, then a distance happens between friends or between spouses. And sometimes we experience that with God. But know that there's a ceremony for that. There's a hyssop for that. God is willing to make the unclean clean and welcome them back into his presence. So sin is a big deal because it does that. It alienates us from God. It also alienates us from people. But we'll get to that one in just a second. In verses 9 through 12, we see that David is asking God to reverse the damages that his sin has committed. Remember, we said sin is a big deal because it defiles us. Sin is a big deal because it's against God. Sin is a big deal because it alienates us between, from God and from other people. And in verses 9 through 12, David is saying, I'm defiled, so cleanse me with hyssop, create in me a clean heart. Sin is against God, so in this psalm, David says, let the bones that you've broken 
rejoice. Saying, bring me back. And his sin is a big deal because it alienates us from God and people. And so David says, cast me not away from your presence. And then verses 13, 14, and 15 are David asking God's permission to be made the right person in his community. Remember, we just exposed David's dirty laundry and we poked out all of the different people that David had harmed because of that one instance of sin. And in all those cases, David was a source of destruction in their life. He was supposed to be the king, but he harmed his country. He was supposed to be her king, but he defiled Bathsheba. He was supposed to be his king, but he murdered Uriah. He was supposed to be a father and a husband, but he committed adultery. He was not the right person he was supposed to be. But in verses 13, 14, and 15, David is asking God's permission to be made the right one. And I don't know if you can relate to that, but I can. When I fall into sin and and I'm ashamed to be called my kid's father because I was not being fatherly, or ashamed to be called a husband because I wasn't being a good husband or a good pastor, and so on and so forth. And so David has a heart and desire to be made right with his community. Verses 13 through 15 Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. What's amazing about verse 13 is we actually have a chapter in the Bible where David apparently does this thing. He tells all these people like, hey, I've experienced forgiveness. It's great. You ought to try this. It's in Psalm 32 if you want to read that another time. He effectively says, hey, I've been downtrodden and broken. I've been destroyed by the weight of my own sin, and God has forgiven me. Forgiven me. You ought to try this. You ought to have a relationship with God, and the aim is so sinners will return to God. And then he asks God to equip him and to allow him to sing God's praise and to glorify God. That's not just in private. David's not saying, let me sing to you when no one's around. He's saying, let me sing over people. David was a musician. And he wanted God's permission to be restored back to a place where he could effectively and in good reputation tell people of God's goodness. He no longer wanted to be a source of destruction in his community, but rather a source of life in his community. And then the psalm closes with verses 16 through 19, where David says, I know, God, you don't want me to just go through the motions. There's the system of sacrifices, but I know that that's not what pleases you. What pleases you is that my heart is broken over my sin. See, this is what God is after. Remember, God delights in truth, in the inward being. We could go through all these steps. We can say, hey, the Bible says what I just did is is murder because hating a brother is murder, so I agree it's murder. That heartless confession is not what God is after. God will reject sacrifices. God will reject and ignore confessions. But what he won't reject and ignore is a broken and contrite spirit. And when our hearts are broken by the weight of our sin, and we say, God, I get it, and I agree. What I've done is broken your heart and broken the people in my life. 
God will by no means ignore that. But God will restore people. He'll forgive people. And then will set them on the trajectory of what they were supposed to be. He will let you be a proponent of his, of his gospel, no matter how many times you fall. And he'll let David be the one who laid the foundations of Jerusalem that would ultimately become the place of the temple. Now, much of scripture and much of today's scripture is about wrestling with us and telling us, look, you are guilty of sin. Everyone is a sinner. The Bible is long written to explain to us and expose the heights and the depths of the, the failures that we may disregard as mere indiscretions. God laboriously has communicated to us the depth of our failures. But it's not just to leave us there. God isn't doing this just so we'll feel rotten and crushed. God is doing this to show us that we need his salvation. It's like there's a venomous scorpion on your back where you can't see it and you can't reach it and your friend is saying, hey, you ought to let me hit you with this stick because you got something on your back and it'll kill you. But maybe you don't acknowledge it. You don't want to be duped. You don't want to be hit with a stick. God's word is like if that friend took a picture of it and said, see, this is what's on your back. Now will you let me hit you with a stick? God doesn't want us just to be sad and downtrodden over our sin. He does want us to be broken over the weight of our sin, but so that way he can rescue us. It takes a lot to convince us that we need rescuing. But God was willing to do that, to explain to us the depth. But as long as we play it down, as long as we refuse to agree that we are failures, that we are missers, that we are sinners, as long as we fail to do that, we cannot be rescued. This gospel is salvation for sinners, therefore only sinners need apply. Jesus' salvation is not for anybody else. It's for the sinners. Sinners like me. 1 John 1, 8-10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. God has gone, gone through pain, staking, revelation through his word to show us that our sins are not mere indiscretions. They are big deals. They defile us. They're against him. They alienate us from him and the people that we love. They turn, they turn us from lovers of our community to destroyers of our community. The Bible wants us to understand the weight and the gravity of that sin so that way the Bible can communicate to us the weight and the gravity of the salvation required and the cost of that salvation. Jesus' death on the cross is because we're not mere proprietors of indiscretion, but we are destructive. We are breakers of things and relationships. Our sins my sins are capital offenses, and so a human life is required to pay for them. But God, by his abundant mercy and his steadfast loving nature, sent his son to give the literal human death 
to pay my price. And this is available to anybody who is able to confess that. That they, yes, I need that. Yes, I need that. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you're not a Christian today, perhaps you feel overwhelmed by mistakes you've made sometimes. And so maybe the, maybe the way out that you provide for yourself is to just ignore it and dodge it and try not to think about it or suppress the pain of that through substances. But today the Bible is saying all it takes is just agree. You're already feeling the weight of your sins. Agree. And the salvation that Jesus offers can be made available to you. But if you are a Christian today, my challenge for myself and for all of us is to not forget what got us here. We are Christians because at one point in our lives, we agreed that we were guilty of sin and in need of salvation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't think that that's a one and done realization. If we were sinners then, we're still sinners now. And as often as we fail, and if you're anything like me, you fail every single day. As often as we sin, so often should we confess. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that in order to obtain the salvation that Jesus offers, we need to literally know every mistake we've made and then confess it to God. I don't think we'll ever fully know everything we've ever done. But... There are those places in our hearts. There are those things of which we feel guilty where we can resonate with David's plea here. And those are convictions that God has put on our hearts because he wants to remove them from us. He wants to forgive us for them. He wants to blot out that transgression. And I guess lastly, I want to close with this. I began by saying it's a lie that it's no big deal that we fail. The Bible says that we sin and each of our sins is a big deal, bigger than we would even know. But there is something that is no big deal, and it's the fact that we're sinners. Our individual sins are each big deals, but the fact that we're sinners, it's no big deal. Everybody's a sinner. I'm a sinner. Everybody is guilty of this. It doesn't have to be a big deal to confess that we've made a mistake, to say, oh, you know what I did just back there? That was dishonest, and I'm sorry. Or to, to confess to God, hey, God, I'm thinking murderous thoughts towards so on and so forth. It doesn't have to be this massive event. It can be something regular in our lives. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7. Now, Paul became one of the most pious, religious leaders of the faith. He wrote much of our New Testament, but this is what he said. I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's language from Psalm 51, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is saying his tendency to oscillate back and forth between godliness and evil is so frequent and so normal that it's a law of Christian humanity. He said, I've done something good. I'm going to screw up pretty soon. 
and I can relate to that. Or listen to how Martin Luther puts it. He says, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we're here for this life is not a place where justice resides. Look, we will fail to great consequences. Sometimes we'll make such big mistakes that it will alter the course of the rest of our lives. Each and every sin bears ripples all the way to the top and offends God himself. And yet, it doesn't have to be a, a big deal to confess that you've done one of those. It's just normal. It's just like saying nobody's perfect. Saying I've sinned is the same as me saying I'm a living, breathing person. Everybody does it. But if we would just make that small confession, even though it can be hard, it's a small confession. If we would do that, then it avails to us the salvation for that. Only sinners need apply. And when we associate ourselves with the sins that we've committed, knowingly, willingly, confess, meaning agree, when we say, I agree, I have done this, then God says, oh, then this salvation is available to you. I've made this salvation available to you. I've afforded salvation for you. The Bible says that no temptation has overtaken us except that which is common to man. The world's seen it all before. It doesn't have to be a big deal for us to say, hey, I'm a sinner. Hey, I'm a Christian and I fouled up royally. It's common to humanity. But if we're unwilling to, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let's pray. Jesus, I agree and acknowledge everything that you say about me. Like we said in the catechism today, we have faith in everything that Jesus Christ has taught. We agree that you created this world. We agree that you sustain this world for your good pleasure. We agree that you've created us, male and female, in your image to proclaim your glory in this world, but that we've fallen from that. And nobody's perfect, which means everyone's a sinner, which means I'm a sinner, which means I sin. I confess that in the hearing of my brothers and sisters today boldly because I know that it avails to me the salvation that you've offered in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your cross, for the fact that in dying upon the cross, you've paid the debt that I owe, and it is but up to us to take you up on that offer. And so I agree. Your salvation is enough to pay for the vast weight of my faults. And I pray my brothers and sisters would feel that so confidently today that yes, we've done horrible things, but yes and amen, Jesus' salvation is sufficient. Thank you for dying for us and for saving us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.